You are listening to episode 52. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Okiki podcast. Again, if you have been loving these episodes, if you could do me a huge favor and go uh, give me a review and a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this podcast and subscribe so that you can get more good, awesome, educational podcast episodes headed your way. So today I got to interview a guest. His name is Henry Dawes, and he is the founder of Dawes Knowledge, which is a coaching business that he has started after making over eight different businesses over his years of being an entrepreneur. In 2019, he also released a self-published 432-page book teaching everything about how to grow and manage your money. And he often runs masterminds and different courses for different digital nomads. So I know that you're going to enjoy this episode like I did today. And thanks again for listening. And without further ado, on with the episode. Welcome to the Okiki Podcast, where we make inspirational people known. Brought to you by your host, Fian O'Brien. Welcome everyone to the Okiki podcast and today I have the honor of having a special guest Henry Das and he is representing his company Das Knowledge. He has years of experience in helping entrepreneurs in different sectors. So I'm so excited to have you on the show today. Thank you Henry for being on the show. Thanks for having me on this holiday Monday. Yeah. Thank yes. you so much. As you were discussing, for my American audience, it is your (laughs) holiday weekend. (laughs) And for my Canadian audience, we had our holiday the weekend before. So (laughs) it was kind of a funny exchange we had here. And do you mind telling us, because you said in your bio, you started your first business in 1991. So what was your journey to actually becoming an entrepreneur? Was that always your path? Uh, What was your educational background? I don't know if it was always my path. I mean, the people in my family were all doctors and lawyers and business owners and such. So it was kind of what I saw. Actually, when I was like a grade schooler, I wanted to be a lawyer. But then I actually met some lawyers and I said, no, I don't, I don't want to be that guy. Um, even though there's part of me that kind of feels like maybe I should have gone to law school. Because I have, I, have I have a bunch of friends who, who have law degrees, but they never practice law. And it's really, really handy when it comes to business. But it, it also takes a couple of years out, out of your life and thousands of dollars out of your wallet. So, you know, it's a choice you got to make relatively early on, I think, although it's never too late to go get an education on things. So I, I always knew in the back of my mind that I would eventually start my own business. So I was uh, in my early 30s 
when I started my first business 30 years ago, because I'm 61, I'll be 62 this year. Yeah, once I did that, I just kind of never looked back. I just said, uh, I like it's a high wire act, right? As the folks who are who are entrepreneurs who are listening, and those of you who are what what I call entrepreneurs, right, want to get into the game, it's it's a high wire act. And I've had six, seven, eight, nine businesses, a lot of different businesses, uh, some some good, some great, some uh, not so great. <laughs> you know, it's been a mixed bag. It's been interesting, been a journey. That's amazing. And so in light of that, and speaking to our audience who are, yes, entrepreneurs and entrepreneurs, what was the biggest obstacle when you started? And what was the scariest moment when you realized, okay, this is what I want to do. And now I'm going to just go for it. Well, I did my business as a side hustle. So although there was no such term as a side hustle in, in, in like the late 80s and early 90s, you would just call it, you know, a moonlighting business, right? That's an anachronistic term, but that's what it, that's what it was. I was working a day job. I was working uh, as a computer programmer down on Wall Street in, in lower Manhattan. And a friend of mine needed some computers. I was a computer geek. I worked out a deal for him. And then uh, over 18 months, I did over half a million dollars worth of business. And I, I turned to my wife and I said, I have a real business here. I'm going to quit my $60,000 a year job and I'm going to start, give up all my benefits and start a business. And that's what I did. The scariest moment, I think the scariest moment, this is funny. This is not a story that I've, I've ever related in any of these podcasts or anything, but we got evicted from our office with one day's notice. We had a sublet of a sublet in this building up on Broadway and 52nd Street. Yeah. And we got notified by the master landlord, who was a big publishing company, that uh, this space was being taken over by, believe it or not, John F. Kennedy Jr. when he <laughs> spawned a magazine called George. I don't know if anybody on this podcast is, is old enough to remember that, but I remember it very well. And they evicted us with one day's notice. We had all our stuff, all our systems, all our inventory, because we were selling computers. And boy, talk about scrambling. We did. We rented a storage space. We got our guys who were truckers to take everything out. And we ended up parking ourselves at my business partner's girlfriend's law office down on Houston Street in Manhattan. And we did it all in 24 hours. I mean... You just reminded me of that. And it was like, <laughs> oh, my God, what are we doing? But we were able to do it. We we're able to just pick up and move the business in 24 hours. Pretty, pretty great without any interruption. <laughs> no one was the wiser other than sort of changing our mailing address. That was about it. That has so. to be the best answer to that question. <laughs> <laughs> that was a crazy trip down memory lane there. So wow. that is the kind of stuff that you're in for when you're an entrepreneur. In fact, it wasn't the um, it wasn't the first time we moved. I think in the first three years of business, we must have moved five or six times because um, you know New York City back then. I mean, now of course places are empty because of the pandemic. But at that time, if you were a small business, just trying to find an affordable small office space was a real challenge. There was no WeWork or any of this 
shared stuff. None of that stuff existed. Uh, nobody wanted to rent 1,500 square feet to a couple of new entrepreneurs. Nobody wanted to take the risk. Nobody wanted to. We were lucky. We found a landlord who had a space and it's like, yeah, all right, I, I can do a deal. He turned out to be our landlord for about 15 years. So really nice guy. In fact, I interviewed him for my newsletter about six months ago because I, I asked him what's going on in the city with commercial real estate. So he gave me the insider's view of, of what's happening, you know, how the pandemic isn't affecting uh, landlords, you know, pretty sobering, I have to say. Yes, definitely. And, and that would be an interesting story in itself. Yeah, no, thank you so much for sharing that. One part I actually kind of want to revisit because mm -hmm. I feel like it was said very quickly, but to the audience, it's very um, shocking is that you said in 18 months, you got to like half a million dollars, was it? Yeah. 600,000 actually. Yeah. yeah. So in your side hustle, so <laughs> do you mind explain to the audience, what was your process in doing that? And how did that impact you then starting your other businesses? As you said, um, you've done quite a few. Well, I was much younger then and I was hustling, you know, so you have to picture this. So we were living in a little, my wife and I had just gotten married in 91. She had a side business, children's clothing. We were both working day jobs. And then shortly thereafter, we had our first child in 1991, Matthew, who's now you know close to 30 years old, living in this tiny little apartment, $1,000 a month apartment. So we're running two businesses. I remember when a trucker came and he dropped off these, these gigantic 26-inch monitors and I had, to, <laughs> I had to bring them up into my apartment. It's like, this is not designed for that. We're tripping over baby toys and, and she's got her sewing machines out. It was a, it was a three ring circus, but we didn't, we just didn't know any better. We figured, okay, we're just hustling. We're trying to save money by not going out and renting a place. Yeah, it was, it was kind of crazy. It was very, very chaotic. And again, you got to remember, this is before the internet. So we had computers, but we didn't really have the, the capabilities that you have now with the internet. So business, you know, sending out invoices was done the old fashioned way print something out on a dot matrix printer and drop it in an envelope. I think to a large degree, the, the biggest takeaway and the lesson that I learned is when you start, you're going to be hustling and wearing a lot of hats and what we call spinning plates, right? You're just running around and you're trying to keep those plates from crashing to earth. Uh, when you're young, you can do that. As you get a little, little bit older, you got to get a little bit smarter about it. Got to start finding people to delegate tasks to. Uh, hiring, hiring is tough. Hiring, I think, is. Um, uh, I wrote a thing on my website called "The Five Reasons Small Businesses Fail." And hiring is number two. The number one reason, of course, being your idea. Your idea is just just doesn't have legs, so you'd be better off just not starting it. One of the things that I caution entrepreneurs is don't fall in love with your idea. In fact, quite the contrary. If you have an idea for a business, you need to beat the heck out of it. You need to get your negative friends. You know, everybody has a friend who's like really negative. Pitch it to them and let them beat it up. Because if it can survive all of that while it's just an idea, then, then maybe you're on to something. But if it can't, there's so much heartache to executing a poor business idea that it'll turn you off for entrepreneurship. You'll just decide, oh no, this is this is not right. But that's false data, in my opinion. So I, I don't know if I answered your question. I kind of meandered around, but that's just how I work. Yeah, no, in a sense, because you're just talking about basically 
<laughs> this is what you learned through the process. And this is what you would suggest to people in their own processes. I guess when you've had a chance to have multiple businesses, you kind of get an idea of what works and how to launch, which is kind of the idea of what I'm getting is that yeah. it's not enough to have an idea, but how do you really test that idea to make sure this is actually worth following through with? Doing a side hustle is a great way to test a business. Like the people say, don't quit your day job. It's like, okay. But I got to the point where I was spending more time on my side hustle than I was on my day job. And it was starting to affect my performance. I had a review and I think I got a 1% raise and my, my boss's boss didn't even want me to get that. And I'm like, okay, that's a warning sign that I'm not paying attention to what I'm doing here on a day-to-day -day basis. And I'm spending more time on, on the hustle. That was where I had the light bulb moment that said, you know, it's time to go, you know, time to cut the cord. And I did. And it's a little terrifying, right? If you're used to working in, in what I call cubicle world, where everything's handled for you, you have an HR department, you never have to worry about payroll or insurance or filing tax forms or workers comp. You know, there are a lot, a lot, a lot of regulations and, and I've got caught up in um, various, you know, regulatory issues with unemployment. You know, I had somebody who I, who I fired and then now all of a sudden you've got to pay unemployment. It's like uh, you got to pay their benefits, right? It's not yeah. a freebie, right? Yeah. So there are all these things that you learn experientially. I wish I could say that there's a book that you could read or a course that you could take that would prepare you for all of this stuff, but there really isn't. Some of it, you're just going to have to learn organically. There's no way around it. And you have to be mindful that these things can knock you off your game. And it has, it's knocked many an entrepreneur off the game. And they say, you know what? I don't want to do this anymore. I'll go back to the comfort of working for a big corporation. I think those are really good points. And one of the things I wanted to ask was when you started your business and the businesses you've started now, including your coaching, which is a huge part of what you do now, what are the differences in the ways that you had to launch your brand and make your brand known? I split it into two kinds of businesses. There are what are called opportunistic. I call them accidental businesses. My first business started out that way. Friend of mine said, I need some computers. I'm having a really tough time sourcing them for one of my clients. I said, you know, I can jump on that and then started doing it. Then he started feeding me deals. He became ultimately became my business partner. Uh, so that's an opportunistic business. Uh, the other business would be a purposeful business where you actually sit down with a piece of paper. My coaching practice, which I started 10 years ago, was the first time I actually did a purposeful business where I sat down and said, okay, what do I want it to look like? There's no right or wrong way. There really isn't. It's You're going to come up with it. Opportunistic businesses are very common. I've talked to lots and lots of entrepreneurs and I'll ask them the origin story. And it's always like, yeah, guy needed this. And I said, all right, I can do that. And before you know it, I got a business. Sometimes that's not a happy story. And <laughs> sometimes it's, I got a business. I don't really know how I got into it. And now that I'm into it, I'm not really sure how I'm going to get out of it. I don't love it, but it makes money, right? And that's an interesting situation that you can get into. That would give you the argument that says, well, a purposeful business allows me to set some boundaries and, and some, some metrics that says, okay, I want this. I don't want this. I call it the three-legged stool. I wrote about this in my book. I wrote a book about money called the FQ Financial Intelligence. And I call it a three-legged stool, right? You decide what must I have? 
what would I like to have and what can I not have under any circumstances? And no matter how much goes into those first two buckets of what I would like to have and what, what I must have, if anything with a, with a business idea has anything in that last bucket, it acts as a spoiler, right? So when I sat down and thought about a coaching business, I'm like, I want to be location independent. I'm going to be an empty nester and I'm pretty much an empty nester now, even though we just moved. But I want to have that ability to be nomadic if I want to. And I have a lot of clients who are what they call digital nomads. I don't want to be responsible for a giant balance sheet and a giant income statement. I've done that before. I'm fine with my clients if they have giant balance sheets and income statements. And I have some clients who are eight-figure businesses, right? So, But that's their responsibility. I'm going to help them with it, but ultimately the decisions are theirs because it's their company. And so I actually sat down and figured all of those things out when I settled on coaching. Plus, more than anything else, I wanted something that brings me joy because if I'm going to do this every day, I don't want to do something that I don't want to do, right? And it's amazing how many people just find themselves in business and then they turn around and they said, I've been in business for 10 years now and I don't really like this business. <laughs> what do I do now? I feel like you touched on some really great points, particularly the <laughs> psychology of the entrepreneur themselves and why and how they start businesses. So right. thank you so much for that. I do really like the way you mapped that out, purposeful versus opportunity, because I know I've listened to other podcasts where people would say, don't always pick purposeful, pick opportunity and make sure it's an opportunity that can pay the bills. <laughs> There's so many yeah. perspectives on that. And then once you did that kind of soul searching for yourself and you're like okay this coaching is purposeful bring me joy it's it's the right combination of things how did you then go about yeah letting those people that you wanted to serve know that your brand exists and yeah what was that process for you I did it the same way I did all, all my other business. I hung up a shingle and said, I'm now in the home theater business. I had a home theater business for 10 years and I just pitched it out to a whole bunch of people. And a friend of mine that I knew through one of my networks was building a house out on Long Island and he wanted to, to do this. So I had, I just sat down and had lunch with him. And I said, look, you're patient zero, right? You're my client number one. Uh, you're taking a risk on me. There's no question because I haven't done this before. I was very, very upfront. And he looked at me and he said, all right, the deal is yours. Just don't F it up. That's <laughs> exactly what he said to me. Uh, and I didn't, right? Uh, but it was tough. That first job was very, very difficult. A lot of moving parts, very, very difficult business. But we learned a lot. We learned a lot about how to, how to operate within that universe. But everything was new and the game was going really, really fast. Uh, and then as you get more experience, it will start to slow down. But you are a little bit of a deer in the headlights when you first start your business. I didn't necessarily focus so much on the brand. The brand was really me. When I started my first company, I, we were an Apple computer evaluated reseller, right? That was long before the Apple stores or any of that stuff. If you wanted to buy a Mac, you had to go to a retailer. A CompUSA, Computer Era, they were these big box stores, stuff that none of, none of which are around anymore. Or you went to a little guy like us, which was known as a value-added reseller, a VAR. Uh, so people would say, what's your value-add? And I would say me, right? You want to buy from me. <laughs> it's as simple as that. The brand was me. Awesome. That was it. So you, you hit a, a good word there, trust. Trust is the thing that you need to establish 
in order for your brand to be successful. And I was just on a mastermind call earlier today, and we were talking about how uh, this happened to be a LinkedIn mastermind, how people go immediately to the call to action. And it's, for, I don't know how other people feel about it, but to me, it's like, whoa, slow down. I don't even know who you are. And now all of a sudden, your, your initial pitch to me is a call to action. That's why when you first sell, you sell to people you know, right? If you were going to be an insurance salesman tomorrow, who would you sell your first insurance policies to? Friends and family, because you've already established trust. Well, for the most part, depends on your family, of course, but you're familiar you've established trust. So that's from a branding standpoint, that's job one, right? And you, you see it with even big corporate advertisers. They have different marketing platforms that they use. And there's kind of a ratio between the number of kind of warm and fuzzy ads that they give. And then some, some things that are feature uh, related and some that are benefit related, but ultimately what it boils down to for people making a buying decision is how do they feel about you? Do they feel like you have their best interest at heart? If they do, they'll open their wallet. If they don't, they're going to be skeptical and they're going to put you through the ringer uh, as a salesperson. And after a while, you're going to say, you know what? There's got to be an easier way to make a sale. That's a very underrated point. I think you brought up <laughs> with the trust. <laughs> So valuable and just so many gems in, in what you just said. I also want to go into this next part because you actually self-published a 432-page book. I did, yes. <laughs> so can we talk a little bit about that sure. and your process of that? Yeah. So what happened was I was at a conference in Bangkok, you know, with a whole bunch of digital nomads for this group that I belong to. And we were uh, doing a Saturday mastermind and I was at a table with a whole bunch of other coaches and we were talking about group coaching, right? Because the difficulty in doing a coaching business is I'm a solopreneur. I mean, I have VAs who work for me, but, uh, uh, you know, I don't work, I don't eat, right? I mean, I get hit by a meteorite and there's nobody at the other end to do my coaching calls. I've said that there are um, better ways to make a living than trading time for money. Yet there are scores of people who are, who are um, service practitioners who, whose only job is to trade time for money. I just went to the chiropractor, right? You know, he's the guy. If he's not working, there's no chiropractic going on. That does limit your potential. So, we were talking about group coaching and I said, I really wanted to build a group coaching program around financial literacy. I've been trading stocks and managing money for 40 years since I was a teenager. Since I was in high school, I bought my first stock when I was in high school. I think I have a wealth of knowledge. And I said, I'm going to, I want, uh, you know, my big hairy, my Jim Collins, big hairy audacious goal was to write a course in that. So they all looked at me and said, you know, you're old, get on that, right? Everybody was half my age at the table. So I'm like, you know, you're not getting any younger. So I came back home and I, I sat down and I wrote it over the next two months and I created it as a course, right? And then I tested it with a dozen people and I did all that stuff. And then a bunch of folks said, you know what? You should really make this a book. A book will be your lead magnet. So I kind of backed into the book. I did everything backwards, right? If I was a millennial, and I know this from experience because I know, know somebody who did this, I would have done it the opposite way. 
I would have gone out and marketed and put landing pages up and floated the idea of here's a course in financial literacy that costs X number. Mine happens to cost thousands of dollars, but it is what it is. And gotten people to pre-sign up. I'm making air quotes. I don't know if you use video in your thing, but get people to, to pre-sign up. And then if you got enough people, then you sit down and do the work. Right. I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a boomer. I do everything backwards. Uh, I actually built everything. <laughs> it's, the, it's the field of dreams approach to business. If you build it, they will come. Now, in my defense, I had 30 years of business experience to know that my idea had legs. So I felt confident that I was going to do it. And frankly, writing a book was on my bucket list. So I had, worst cases, I could check that off. So that's, that's how I did it. And then I, uh, and then published the book and used that as my lead magnet. And then I was doing a lot of, I was starting to do talks when I did that right before COVID. And then all that got shut down. And I turned my attention to talking on podcasts about that, talking about financial intelligence, financial literacy, entrepreneurship, all those things. I do think it's cool that you kind of reverse engineered it in a sense, because even though there is that typical way of doing things, it was really your coaching group that kind of really wanted that information. So in a way, it was pre-validated. <laughs> and I know <laughs> in a May, sense, I, I appreciate you saying that and vindicating just, just thinking about it. And it's kind of uh, I've heard for speakers, it's a really important tool to have, but like it's cool that you're able to integrate it into your lead magnet and all of that and and make it really work as a tool for your business. And so I guess one of my last questions for you is. In light of all the experiences you have and the coaching you've gotten and the way you've really been able to serve people, what is the thing you value the most about what you get to do today as a coach? I love seeing the transformation. You know, I'm the father of three boys. So my kids are 20, 24, 29. And one of the great things about being a father is just seeing the different phases that they go through. They're like these little sponges of knowledge and they're, they're, sometimes they're just kind of hanging on every word. So you have to be careful. Uh, there have been times on coaching calls where I say to myself, I can't believe that I'm, that I'm doing this, that I'm telling people this and they're going to go do it. Right. And it's going to, and it's going to work out really well. Right. I mean, even now I get like chills, even thinking about it, something about it is just so incredibly rewarding, not even a money thing. I tell people, I had this call the other day with someone who was a prospect and I said, look, and I've said this to many, many prospects in the past. I said, the money's, the money's for your benefit, not for mine. And they're like, how do you figure that? I said, because the money holds you accountable. Right. I've given my services away for free. Uh, when we get to the end, I'll, I'll give a little freebie. I give a freebie on all my podcasts, you know, for people to get a free month of coaching out of it. But what I've discovered is people, people don't really value it because it's too easy to walk away from stuff that's free. You've got to have skin in the game. If you are an entrepreneur, you are going to have to spend money in order to make your business work. You are going to have to hire good people and you're going to have to hire good vendors and you're going to have to pay them, right? You don't want to overpay them, but you do have to pay them. Once you start paying them, the funny thing happens. You're expecting value in return, right? You just are. And if you don't get value from them, you're going to find a new vendor. I remember, uh, you know, I've been through different SaaS products, right? I'll start with an entry-level SaaS product, let's say a, um, a marketing piece. You know, there's so many out there and it's so easy, the barriers to entry on a lot of them. It's a couple dollars a month, but then I find it doesn't do what I want it to do. So then I got to level up to the next one. Well, that one's more than a couple dollars a month. It might be 
$20 instead of $10. And then the next one's $30 and the next one's $50. And before you know it, you start getting up to where the real players are, right? Where the ones who are really providing you the value. I guess one of the biggest takeaways from my book is differentiating when something is costly versus when something is expensive, because they are two very, very different things, right? Things that are of value may be quite costly. Other things that are not of value, are they're expensive. The reason they're expensive is because you're not getting the value out of it for the cost associated, right? That makes sense. It's kind of a fine point. But yeah, I think it's definitely. easy for people to chase the low-cost provider and then get disappointed by the fact that they're just not getting it done. And think about it logically from a business standpoint. If you are receiving the funds as the low-cost provider, well, you don't have extra margin to hire the best people. You're going to hire people who will work cheap. And people who work cheap, I hate to say it, I'm generalizing it, there's a higher likelihood that those people are going to give you substandard service, right? It's just kind of how it works. Very, very good and interesting points. And, and now that we've come to the end of our podcast, I'd love to give you that chance to share what we were just briefly talking about and what Henry offers our listeners at different podcasts. So yeah, if you would like to talk about that. Um... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I have a landing page. It's podcast.dosknowledge.com. And DOS is spelled with two A's and one S. Although if you misspell it, it'll still get you there because I have both URLs, right? Because people misspell my name all the time. And I offer a month of free coaching. So what does that mean? That's four weeks of half hour sessions. We can talk about money. We can talk about entrepreneurship. We can talk about golf. We can talk about whatever it is that you want to talk about. It's, it's informal. It gives you an opportunity to really see what the coaching relationship is about and how it can benefit you. I'll bet that 90 plus percent of your listeners out there don't have a coach and don't know what that's all about and how that can benefit you. Again, we're now talking about the value proposition of paying a professional to make your entrepreneurial life easier. Uh, you're gonna get you know, 2X, 3X, 5X return on that. You just will. But making that leap of faith, especially for entrepreneurs and early stage investors, I'm sorry, and uh, early stage entrepreneurs, uh, making that investment, that's tough, right? Getting over that scarcity mindset is really tough. So this gives you an opportunity to do it for free. Thank you so much, Henry. And thanks for sharing all those experiences in such a candid way and bringing that value to our audience today. Really appreciate having you on the podcast. I loved being here. Thank you so much.